If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. And there was a lot of um, dissension in that period in the in the 1930s about what constituted a child um, for the purposes of being a refugee. And I think that um, the definition of a child changes over the period of the Spanish Civil War. That was Jordana Bailkin talking about the history of refugees in Britain. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Now, when we think about refugee camps, very often our thoughts turn to quite distant parts of the world. But over the course of the 20th century, people of many different nationalities have been accommodated in this way in Britain. Professor Jordana Bailkin, a historian at the University of Washington in Seattle, has written a new book exploring the history of these camps. She spoke to our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans. So you're a scholar of modern Britain and empire, uh, and you're a professor of history at the University of Washington in Seattle, where you're joining us from. Thank you. And um, your latest book is Unsettled, Refugee Camps and the Making of Multicultural Britain, which draws on the idea that uh, the common idea, perhaps, that refugee camps exist elsewhere um, and that Britain does isn't a land of camps. Yet the period that you're looking at in your book from the First World War to the 1980s actually saw many examples of refugee camps uh, and displaced people. So could you perhaps introduce us to your book and the type of um, groups that you're looking at? Yes. So this is a book that begins with the Belgian refugees who were fleeing the Germans during the Great War, during the First World War. Um, and it extends through the 1980s and uh, refugees coming from the Civil War in Vietnam. So over that time period from 1914 to the 1980s, there are dozens of different kinds of refugee camps that are set up for many different groups, um, for, including the Belgians and the Vietnamese, but also mixed in there, we have um, the Basques, uh, the Anglo-Egyptians and Hungarians, uh, the Ugandan Asians, 
and uh, the Jewish refugees also fleeing the Nazis in the Second World War. So it's a very diverse group of refugees that these camps are serving. And um, many of the camps are repurposed and sort of recycled for different groups of refugees. Um, So different ethnic groups move through the same spaces sometimes. Mm -hmm. I guess at this point, it would be a good point as well to... um Define the term refugee as you mean it, because you write that a lot of people you spoke to didn't see themselves as refugees. Um, That's absolutely right, that many of the people I spoke with did not define themselves as refugees. Um, They used a lot of different terms to describe themselves. Evacuee was one very popular term for both the Anglo-Egyptians and the Ugandan Asians. And this is really um, distinctive to the history of refugees in Britain, uh, because of Britain's imperial past, uh, many of the Ugandan Asians who are forced out of Uganda in 1972 are actually British subjects and have British passports. Um, So their legal right to enter Britain is never in dispute. Um, And then perhaps more surprisingly, with the Poles, who are in Britain after uh, the Soviet Union occupies Poland, they are offered citizenship in Britain uh, because of their military service during the Second World War. So there are many different ways in which the categories of refugees and citizens are not really so far apart um, during the period that I'm looking at. And you're, well, obviously you're looking at um, a variety of groups and a huge variety within all of those groups as well. But could we talk perhaps a little about the spaces um, that these groups came to in Britain, perhaps maybe starting with the Belgians after the First World War? Yes, so the spaces are very diverse, as well as the groups themselves, and there were many different spaces that refugees might live in once they came to Britain. Um, So the Belgians were mostly set up at Earl's Court and Alexandra Palace, and there was really, um, you know, judging from contemporary press reports, a kind of carnivalesque mood to... uh, refugees being moved in by the thousands very, very quickly um, into these spaces that had been kind of pleasure palaces in London. Um, So these are very vast spaces. Obviously, they're integrated into the city. Um, They're not kind of on the outskirts or on the margins um, of where most British people live, but really kind of in the heart of the city themselves. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we could have refugees living in very remote army or air force bases um, in Nissen huts, um, which were these kind of barracks that um, many refugees occupied. I think that's probably the more typical refugee experience in Britain is to be in a, a military base and military style housing, barrack style housing. And so for you, what, what defines what makes a refugee camp? Oh, that's a really great question. And and one of the um, interesting aspects of working on the book for me was seeing how Britons in the 20th century debated that term. I mean, they very rarely use the term camp. They use it quite a lot in terms of the Belgians. Um, So talking about Earl's Court as a camp or Alexandra Palace as a camp is relatively uncontroversial. I think after the Second World War, the term camp becomes 
tainted, um, obviously, with the with the exposure of the concentration camps. And then you see a lot of British discomfort with that term. Um, so some of the, the recordings, the oral histories that I've listened to at the Imperial War Museum, which are with mostly Jewish refugees who were then interned in Britain and spent time in internment camps. One of the things that's really interesting, so these are interviews that are conducted largely in the 1970s and 80s. And you can hear the British interviewer asking about the spaces of the camp, but not using that word. And then the refugees will use the term camp and they'll say, oh, in the camp. And the interviewer will correct them and say, oh, it's not really a camp. Um, And they will say, yes, it is. I I came from a camp and I went to a camp in Britain and it's it's a camp. And they will also refer to the leaders of the camp as the commandant. um, And that makes the, the British interviewer incredibly uncomfortable. And she will often correct them and say, you mean the camp leader? Oh, but it's not a camp. And so there's a lot of um, denial of that term camp in British history. Um, To me, partly what defines it is this twinned experience of aid and detention so that um, people in camps have rules about when they can leave, when they're allowed to move in and out of these spaces, um, both on a day-to-day level while they're living there, and then ultimately when they go to resettle, you know, what are some of the rules and restrictions around their resettlement? Um, So places that had that combination of offering emergency aid in terms of food, housing, et cetera, but also creating restrictions around particularly freedom of movement. Um, That to me is one of the defining characteristics of the camp. Can we talk a bit about the aims of the various camps? So um, was it resettlement or repatriation? Or could you give us a sense of what was kind of the end game for these areas in Britain? Well, there were different expectations for different groups of refugees. So the Hungarians were always expected to emigrate elsewhere after a relatively brief stay in Britain. And that is, for the most part, what happened. Um, The Basque children who were fleeing the Spanish Civil War, um, similarly, were all expected to be repatriated to Spain and to rejoin their families after the war was over. In that case, the outcome was much more complicated. And um, some of those children did wind up staying in Britain even after the war was over. In terms of um, groups that wind up largely staying in Britain, I think the Ugandan Asians would be um, probably the the group that's best known and sort of becomes the most integrated um, into British society. So in their case, the camps are specifically known as resettlement centers with the idea that most of them will resettle in Britain. Now, initially, the state doesn't think that's what will happen. Um, the expectation is that they may go to India, um, being of Indian descent, um, and and certainly many of them do go to the United States and Canada, but there's a, a significant um, portion that stay in Britain after leaving the camps. I think the Ugandan Asians are a very important example because um, they are uh, very much looked at as a model minority within British society. So their um, success, and particularly economic success, is often talked about from the 1980s onwards as an example of um, a very successful group. Um, And what's interesting to me with the 
many of the Ugandan Asians that I spoke with um, and whose memoirs I read um, for this book is that they don't talk about being in camps very much either. So the refrain that I heard constantly while I was doing the research for the book was, you know, we left with 55 pounds in a suitcase um, because that is what Idi Amin allowed people to leave Uganda with. And then within one generation, you know, we had become um, entrepreneurs and um, successful business owners in Britain. So there's a very strong Ugandan Asian narrative, as well as a white British narrative about the Ugandan Asian expulsion. And it's very much a narrative of success um, and upwards mobility and entrepreneurship. And when one looks at the archives of the camps, um, because there were 16 different camps for Ugandan Asians and about 21,000 people who moved through those camps, you know, it's a much more complicated and I would say darker narrative about people's lives being completely disrupted um, by the camps and a real concerted effort by the state to control the settlement patterns of Ugandan Asians, which didn't work at all. Um, but nevertheless, it's one of the, the more detailed social engineering efforts that I've seen um, by the Home Office in the 20th century, where they really try to use the camp locations to determine where Ugandan Asians will be able to settle. Um, so that period of encampment, which is really um, just about a year for most people, um, that is very uncomfortable to discuss. Um, and I think it doesn't fit with either the Ugandan Asian or the sort of official British narrative of tragic expulsion followed by successful, um, uh, ownership and, and economic stability, um, in a new country, but that, that period of, of, destabilization and, you know, many different personal tragedies um, tends to be very much glossed over and forgotten. You mentioned it a bit earlier, but I'd like to um, go back to what you said about the layering of populations within the camps and how they were recycled or reused for different groups and, and the timings of that. Yes. So that was another um, surprising aspect of the story to me. I had really assumed that each group would have its own set of camps. But instead, what we see is that some, especially military bases, are constantly sort of closing and opening and um, reopening with each refugee crisis. So there's a real insistence, I think, uh, within the state on um, seeing each refugee crisis as completely unrelated to the one before it. And at the same time, there's constant pressure from organizations who work with refugees to establish some kinds of permanent structures of aid. And so there are people in refugee or aid organizations who suggest, you know, rather than constantly scrambling for spaces every time there's a refugee crisis, why don't we have a dedicated space that would always be for refugees. And, um, you know, there's some debate about what that would look like and where in the country that would be. But there's tremendous resistance within the Home Office to that idea. And I think that's why all of these crises wind up being seen as kind of discontinuous, discrete emergencies that really have nothing to do with one another. And what I saw when I looked at the camp archives um, is that, in fact, people from one crisis to another 
work together and live together, um, they aren't all necessarily resettled, but there are people who stay in camps for a very long time. I mean, the Poles are probably the longest encamped group of any that I looked at um, and in many ways tremendously difficult um, to resettle and to get out of the camps. And that means that some of them are still in camps um, from the 40s and 50s when the Ugandan Asians arrive in the 1970s. So there's a lot more overlap um, than I think we would commonly realize within these camps. They're not really discrete emergencies. Um, also, there are people who are refugees um, at one moment who then dedicate themselves to volunteering with other refugees later. So they'll come back to camps where they stayed at one point and work with new refugee groups and, um, you know, cook for them or try to help with the resettlement process. So that's a fairly common pattern because these, these crises are in a way very close together. Going back to what you mentioned about the um, Basque children, mm. um, refugees from Spain, and they... There were certain challenges, I believe, where kind of categorizing them in terms of age and, yes. and regulating that. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, of course, this seems very um, urgent to us right now when being classified as a as a child for the purposes of entering a country as a refugee is so vital and can really be sort of a life and death decision. And there was a lot of um, dissension in that period in the in the 1930s about what constituted a child um, for the purposes of being a refugee. And I think that um, the definition of a child changes over the period of the Spanish Civil War um, to become more flexible um, and in some ways more, more generous um, that a wider range of ages are ultimately uh, entering Britain. But that also prompts different kinds of anxieties um, in the camps themselves, that they are filled not with young children, but with a lot of teenagers who are um, feared as being, in some cases, overly political and um, anarchical and potentially violent, um, and in other cases, sort of overly sexual. And this is why there's so much um, concern about isolating the Basque camp um, and trying to make sure that local Britons don't get into it um, because there's a lot of a lot of fear about what will happen from that mixing. Um, and it's, it's anxiety in both directions. I mean, there's some anxiety that English communists will sort of incite rebellion among the Basque children um, and especially among those older children and teenagers. Um, but there's also concern that the Basques will become an anarchical force um, within Britain and um, will radicalize political views where they live. So, yeah, lots of opportunities for anxiety then. Something really interesting that comes out of your book is um, the the discovery that although these places might have been designed or intended um, to host refugees, um, you actually found that they almost always shared their camps with with Britons who'd been displaced by by poverty or war. Um, what can you tell us about about that discovery? Well, that was certainly the biggest surprise to me in my research. That wasn't something that I was expecting to find. And it was really kind of revelatory when I started to see um, mention of Britons sort of moving usually quite rapidly through these camps. I think the camps where this was the biggest um, 
where there was the biggest uh, coalition of Britons would be in the Polish camps um, because they're set up during and after the Second World War. And there are so many Britons who were displaced um, by the bombings of the Blitz um, and also by slum clearance. So it's very, very quiet in official documents about the presence of these Britons. And one thing that I um, try to explore in the book is why Britons living in refugee camps are so invisible to us today. This is not something, they're never photographed um, that I've been able to find, and they're kind of an invisible presence. Um, But occasionally, former refugees that I spoke to would would mention them in a very matter-of-fact way and say, oh, of course, you know, there were... um, Irish families and English families. And then uh, once we get into the late 40s and 50s, African-Caribbean families who came through these camps with us, and they would talk about how the presence of those Britons um, was shocking to them um, and what kinds of relationships with them they forged. So this was really one of the, the major points I wanted to make in the book is that we tend to see refugee camps is really a marker of difference between refugees and citizens, that this is the place where the um, legal status, the different legal status of the refugee is kind of made manifest and visible. Um, But in fact, you know, if we look into the the history of the camps themselves, um, they are very diverse in their demographies and there are all kinds of people in need who move through them, sometimes for very brief periods. And it's very difficult, I think, for the historians to capture their presence um, because it is largely undocumented. So I was very interested in the examples I was able to find. Um, One of them is at a Polish camp in Essex um, where, in that case, the presence of Britons was actually authorized by the state, which is not true in other instances. But in this case... um, the National Assistance Board actually sets up a center for what they call wayfarers and vagrants within the Polish camp itself. And so we have Polish refugees and British vagrants, as they were known at the time, um, homeless Britons essentially sharing space, sharing meals, they share a doctor, they share a warden. So they're actually in much closer contact and more intimate contact than I would have assumed when I began this book. Uh, and in in the similar vein, then, um, what kind of cultural exchanges did you find that were taking place in some of these camps? Well, they really ranged tremendously in terms of how positively or negatively they're viewed. I mean, I I ran into many white Britons who talked about refugee work. Um, you know, if they've volunteered in camps, for example, as being tremendously rewarding and also their first opportunity to meet someone who was from a different culture and sometimes a different race. Um, so one of the examples I talk about in, in Wales, um, in this very, very remote camp in North Wales, um, Tom I camp, was a woman who said, I think, and this would have been true for many people in her town, that she had never met anyone Asian before, um, before she came to volunteer at the camp. This is in 1972. And so she brought her son to work at the camp with her, her young son. And um, she wound up becoming very close to the family that she worked with at the camp. And they actually pricked their fingers and mixed their blood um, to indicate that they saw themselves as family after that point. And her son, um, she's spoken a little bit about this in uh, 
broadcasts about you know memories of of the camp um, that this was the first place her son tried a chili pepper and he was so startled by it you know that he was um, volunteering in the camp and had this experience of encountering new tastes and new foods and and for them it was a tremendously positive experience and very exciting. I think for others, you know, it was a much more um, negative kind of interaction. And um, one of the chapters of the book deals with acts of resistance by refugees and sometimes acts of violence. And so um, there were certainly camps for the Vietnamese and the Ugandan Asians um, where the National Front set up protests right outside the camp. And sometimes those protests turned violent. So there's an enormous range of the types of interactions um, that refugees and citizens are having, both within the camp and then right outside of it as well. One thing I'm really interested about is um, how Britain perceived its own role in terms of welcoming these refugees. Well, I think the discussion in Britain now, as in the United States, focuses a lot on the politics of entry, that is, who is allowed into the country. And there are moments um, in that history that Britain is proud of, um, namely in terms of its role in uh, allowing Jewish child refugees to enter Britain um, during the Second World War. So there's there's pride, I think, in the past history of refuge as it pertains specifically to this issue of entry, you know, who gets to come in. Um, And a lot of the contemporary debate about refugees remains very focused on that issue. And what I think is completely um, erased from that discussion is what happens to people once they are in the country. And, you know, there's, I think that's why the, the history of camps is so important to talk about because it's this, in-between period, um, whereas the the popular narrative, I think, about refugees is it's all about getting in, and then after that, about kind of assimilation or integration into the community. But for many refugees in the 20th century, there was this period of encampment that is very much not talked about. Um, I think partly because of a discomfort in Britain with the idea of putting in many cases, one's own citizens in camps. Um, So these camps are an important part of the refugee experience in Britain that is really not discussed. It's it's very rare to see mention of them in contemporary political debates about refugees in Britain today. So I think what we see much more of, um, for example, in, in the Alf Dubs Amendment is, you know, we should allow Syrian children to enter Britain now as Jewish children were allowed and in many cases embraced in the 1930s. So there's the use of that past history to um, offer a rationale or a justification for more generous entry policies. And I think that's incredibly important, but I'd also like to include in that discussion this reminder that um, many of those Jewish children um, found themselves in camps once they arrived in Britain and their experiences were really varied. You know, we get some people comparing camps in Britain to concentration camps and other people who spoke about them and wrote about them and remember them today in incredibly positive terms. So it's a very diverse experience. It's interesting to consider why these camps have been forgotten. I mean, partly it's just a lack of 
the physical spaces have been reconfigured in various ways. So I talk in the epilogue about what's happened to some of the the physical spaces of the camps, and you know, in many cases they've been um, redeployed as as business parks or luxury housing. Um, they've met a lot of different fates. Um, some of them have turned into immigration detention centers, which is one of the um, I would say is sort of the present day incarnation of the refugee camp in Britain. We don't have refugee camps in Britain anymore, um, but what we have is a vast immigration detention network. Um, so th- I think that's another reason this, the spaces aren't really remembered is because they don't physically exist in the same form. And even I, after working on the, the book for a number of years, um, when the cartographer for the book, Bill Nelson, produced the map for me of all the different places that are mentioned in the book, it was still very startling to me to see it on a single page and see just how many spaces there were and how they really cover um, the map of Britain. So I think one of the reasons they're forgotten is that it's it's inconvenient to remember the ways that these two categories of contemporary political discourse, refugees and citizens, and a third category too of migrant, um, those are all kept very firmly separate in contemporary politics. And I think that this space where they were in fact constantly mixed together and it was difficult to maintain the boundaries between them, um, that that's part of what makes it um, important to forget those spaces because that is a a very kind of volatile truth in a political system where, um, in a political system that in many ways where rights depend on keeping those categories separate. That was Jordana Bailkin. Unsettled, Refugee Camps and the Making of Multicultural Britain has just been published by Oxford University Press. And we've now come to the end of today's episode. But please do listen in on Monday for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 